If I tell you that Christianity is the imitation of Jesus Christ, is that good news or bad news? Or let me say it differently. If I tell you that your Christian life is going to be you looking more and more like Jesus, is that law or is that gospel? And then I'm going to suggest to you now, it's neither and it's both and it has everything to do with whether or not you have a heart trained to know who you are in Jesus Christ by the proper distinction of law and gospel in all of your life. Because I'll tell you, the greatest good news that I have from Jesus for me is that I'm going to imitate Jesus the rest of my life, and that's what God's doing to me. And even though I can take that and say, well, I'm not living up to it by my own reason or strength, and I can beat myself up with the imitation of Christ, That is not to rightly understand what he said. He hasn't said, here are some good works for you to do, Jonathan. I hope you earn salvation. He said, I have saved you so you can stop worrying about salvation. It is guaranteed. You have been elected. There is now another righteousness that has nothing to do with you. And I have lavished it upon you in utter promises that cannot be revoked. So that now you may know there is no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ. So stop worrying about yourself so much. And I say, oh, that's too much law. Stop worrying about myself. Well, that's, that's the danger we face now in Romans 15 here. When God's going to say to us, now that I've done it all for you, I'd like you to love your neighbor. If we go, oh, that's law heavy, that condemns me. It shows not that we don't love the law, although it shows that too. It shows we haven't heard the gospel. Now, remember from last week in Romans 14 that we're dealing with a struggle between the strong in the faith and the weak in the faith in the congregation of the Roman church. And that the strong in the faith know they are free and their works do not have anything to do with their salvation. So they're okay ignoring Sabbath restrictions. They're okay buying meat at the marketplace, even though they don't know where it came from but that there are those who are weak, some of them probably Jewish Christians who are really hyper-concerned with Old Testament legal codes. And so they're not able to buy the meat offered at the marketplace without their conscience being confused by it. And the whole thing is, how do we live together when we have those who know they're free and aren't too worried and those who are still judging themselves based on their works? And Paul's word is that you who are strong, you who know Jesus is your savior and aren't worried about it because he's promised it to you, Bear with the weak. Welcome the weak. Love the weak. Even when the weak says, that's too much law for me today. All the more so, you don't judge yourself by the law. You be judged by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And knowing that you can stand against the entire world in that free gift Make an effort to see beyond yourself. See your neighbor and love them. Romans chapter 15 starts on page 949 of your pew Bible. It starts with these words. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. He's talking about Christians. He's not talking about we who figured out how to to speak in tongues 
And we who figured out how to have health and wellness and perfect lives based upon our powerful faith, he's not talking about that. He's just talking about those whose consciences aren't bothered by the truth and those who struggle to find that truth and are listening to stories that tell them their relationship with God has something to do with something that's not Jesus. There's going to be weak Christians in the faith. What we want to do is clearly distinguish truth for them without using our knowledge of freedom as a, as a hammer against them, right? So that in all things, we strive, all of us, to build each other up. Again, because that's who our God is. You're not going to strive to build other people up so that you can anything for God. It's because God has chosen to build you up. That's what Jesus means. He has chosen to build you up. He's going to build you up into someone who builds other people up. And if you say, I don't want that. I can't do that. Again, you haven't heard it. And this is a gift. You say, well, I haven't done it perfectly. Why are you trying to? It's not about you. It is about Jesus for you. And Jesus for you means you can stop worrying about you. Which at some point means someone else is going to strike you on the cheek. And you're going to be ready to be in wrath against that person. And you're going to look back and you're going to see them. And before the wrath comes out, you're going to remember that mercy is good. That's, again, a promise. Not a command. The law written in stone could never do this to us. The gospel shed on the cross writes this on our hearts in the blood of Jesus. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you, if you want to judge your heart and say, can I do that perfectly? Your answer's got to be no. But he's not writing it there, so you'll say, well, I can't do that perfectly. But that's not why he wrote it. He wrote it because it's a good thing to try to do. And, and if we don't, if, if we all walk around trying to please ourselves rather than our neighbors because we can't do it perfectly, guess what we're going to have? A whole lot of fighting and division and schism and argument and misconstruction and doubt and shame. Huh? Christ did not please himself. And again, is that law or gospel? That's gospel right there. Christ didn't please himself. Look what he's doing on the cross there. You think that was fun? It wasn't fun. You know why he did it? Because he loves you. Because he's chosen you. Because he wants to cover you. He did not please himself. As it is written, he quotes the Psalms here, Psalm 69. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That is, the people who hated God deserved wrath. And I, Jesus, took it. I took that wrath they deserved. They who hated God, I let them hate me instead, and I absorbed all of that hate all the way around. Again, this is to show us who our God is, and the promise that you are going to be a reflection of this God is not bad news. And it's not the law, even though the law and the prophets testify to it. For, verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. You see that? The Bible is there for your good. So if I tell you, read the Bible. If I tell you, you should read the Bible. That is not there to condemn you. That is not there as a curse. Now, if you're going to judge your eternal salvation based upon how perfectly you read the Bible, yeah, you're going to feel a lot of guilt about that. 
But that, that's, not, that's not what I'm trying to do. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what the Bible says. It says it's there to build you up. And so, yes, you should read it. And if you don't, guess what's not going to happen? Well, you're going to listen to the stories of the world. And those stories aren't going to build you up. Does that mean you need to save yourself? No. Again, do you see how confusing this can get when you start asking selfish, fleshly questions that are based upon you not knowing who your God is? And the gospel is the oath, the oath that he's your God. A vow. He will not leave you or forsake you. Now here, I'm going to feed you. No, it's too much law. What are you? Not too much law to eat. Take and eat. It's a good commandment he leaves us. Huh? Whatever was written in former days is written for our instruction. The Bible's good. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Endurance, encouragement, hope. The Bible has endurance. It's going to outlast us. That's why making your brain run with the words of the Bible, right? You read it, you remember it. It becomes a thought that's a pattern in your head. Running with the words of the Bible means you're running with the words that are going to outlive your life. This word will not pass away. Heaven and earth may pass away. This word will not pass away. That's a wonderful thing to be given. And then encouragement. The encouragement, again, is that even though you are sinners, unclean, wretched, incomplete, self-curved in on, and you use even the best things of God in the worst possible manner, nonetheless, he's not going to let you do that the rest of forever. That's why he chose you, was to stop all of that. And now, as though through a mirror dimly, as though weakly crawling, you begin to try, and that alone, trusting that he's sufficient, is to be justified by grace through faith. If you're looking at your works for confidence, you're never going to feel confident. If you're looking at your works because God said they're good, you might just see your neighbor. You might just see your neighbor and learn what love is. Finally, hope. The hope that does not disappoint again is that he has risen. Hallelujah. I said Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. The hope is the resurrection of your body into eternal life where you won't have any more doubts. You won't have any more shame. And you can believe all of that now. So that when you find the shame in your heart, you can tell your own heart it's a liar. I feel like I wasn't good enough this week. I'll, I'll tell you right here. I feel like I didn't do a good enough job this week. I gave two breakout presentations at Higher Things. I gave it my all. I put my entire heart into it. I desired to properly distinguish law and gospel to build up the faith of those children. And nonetheless, I received multiple complaints. My heart goes, oh, I must not be a very good person. Oh, maybe I'm not even really a Christian. Oh, I'm a pretty bad pastor. I'm going to lead people astray. And then I remember that Jesus has said, that's not who I am. And that his word is sufficient. And so if my heart is going to accuse me with a lie, I have the right to tell my heart it's wrong. Now, am I okay because I did good enough this week? No, it doesn't matter. However I did or didn't do this week, I still stand in Jesus Christ. Which gives me the freedom to actually repent if I indeed did fail in a way that needs to be repented of. And at the same time, gives me the freedom to stand all the more firmly and not assault myself with lies that the devil shoots. Because you know the devil shoots lies at you, right? Like flaming arrows. They come at you from all over. And what they want you to do is to doubt your identity 
in Jesus Christ. Yeah? The Bible's not enough for you. Jesus isn't enough for you. You're special. You're on the outside. You just won't quite make it. That's the lie. So no matter what's being said, even the true law, when it says that to you, the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus is the power to say to yourself, Jesus is, he is risen. I am his own. Okay, I kind of went off on that a little bit here. Uh, but verse five. So he prays for us, right? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, plural, that, that you is plural. He's talking to the church, the congregation. Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. And together you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is that harmony that he's asking that we would have? The harmony of endurance, the harmony of encouragement. That would be that our minds would be joined in the one voice of what the Bible actually says. To stand upon Christianity is to receive the word of God and keep it. And when I say keep it, I don't mean by your own reason or strength. I don't mean by works righteousness. I mean that that's the gift. That you get to keep the word of God. And afterwards you get to say, I have kept the word of God. And God says, but you are just a worthless servant. You go, amen to that. But I have the word of God. Why? Because he gave it to me. Huh? The prayer is then that we, we, plural, would have that. I've said to you again and again as a congregation that our strength is going to be that we know what the Bible says. That's going to be what makes us outlast the falling institutions of this age. That we know what the Bible says. And of course, we know that that means that Jesus, having risen from the dead, comes to us in this Lord's Supper as the heartbeat. Huh. Of course, we know that this means that a man is a man and a woman is a woman and they get married and they have kids. And that's normal and the way things normally go. Right. The Bible says many things and they bind us together with a certainty that cannot be taken away from us. Again, his prayer is that that would be here for us at St. Paul. That's my prayer for us, too. Therefore, because of this, since we know we can't be divided where the scripture speaks, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, right? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Law or gospel? Well, if, if, if you really feel like it's too much to be told welcome people and that that's something said to condemn you, then I guess it's law. But, but I think the point is that Christ has welcomed you. That's the point. Christ has welcomed you. And since he has welcomed you, he's welcomed you into being him. Like literally, you're going to eat his body. You're him. And so to have your mind transformed by the renewal of your spirit, to believe it's good to welcome other people, and you don't have to judge yourself every time. I didn't welcome them enough. I didn't smile the right way. Like, like no, just like, just be here with each other. That's the idea. Be people of of mercy. We're going to get back to that here in, in just a moment. He says in verse 8, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. That means he kept the Jewish law to show God's truthfulness. It's because God had said, keep this Jewish law and you will live. And so Christ kept it so that he would live and show God meant what he said when Christ rose from the dead, vindicated by being a perfect man. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that is before the Jewish law was given, it was promised from Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to the world and save everybody. So Jesus kept the Jewish law to be the perfect man according to the truthfulness of the Sinai covenant to fulfill the promises given to Abraham and to Eve. And, verse 9, in order that the Gentiles, that's everyone who's not a Jew, might glorify God, that is, know who God is, call upon his name, 
for his, I just said it, mercy. It is about mercy. It ultimately is. And so one who is strong in the faith is simply one who knows God's first step is mercy. And knowing that is not some sort of attainment you get. It's not something you can get better at. It's something the scripture says. And the more you see it in the scripture, the more you're going to be confident in it. But that's it. To be strong is to know that mercy is God's first step. And because it's God's first step, it's going to be yours someday. So why not stop fighting the idea, right? And kind of embrace it. Now, the remaining section in verses uh, 10, 11, and 12 here are all quotes from the Old Testament meant to affirm not the mercy idea, but remember that this disagreement that's taking place in Rome over the meat at the marketplace and the Sabbath worship and all this is really about Jewish Christians who want to insist upon Old Testament codes and Gentile, that is non-Jewish Christians, some of whom are insisting upon Old Testament codes and other ones who are like, no, I'm not getting circumcised. I'm 45. Not going to do it. I'm free. I'm free in the gospel. And so Paul is emphasizing that becoming a Jew is not what Christianity is about, that you can remain a member of the nations, a non-Jew, and still be a Christian. And this isn't just a new idea that Jesus came up with or Paul came up with. It's throughout the Old Testament. So he quotes a bunch of Old Testament verses. He says, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. I believe that's from Psalm 18, David. David says, I will praise Jesus among the nations, right? And again, it says, rejoice, O nations, with this people. And that's Deuteronomy 32. That's Moses. Moses in Deuteronomy says, it's for the whole world. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. And let the peoples extol him. That's Psalm 117. Very short psalm. One of the shortest ones. It's like, alleluia, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, the nations, alleluia. It's most of the psalm right there. Huh? But again, stating that the gift of salvation is for all people. And again, Isaiah says, this is Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will hope. Notice that the reign of God, the kingdom, Jesus being the king, is a source of hope. Again, it, it all comes down to who you think Jesus is. Do you think he's a taskmaster? Do you think he's here trying to get you to be good so he can give you stuff? Or do you see him as the king who has already broken the gates of death for you and holds you in the palm of his hand and is running forward saying, follow me? If you say, well, I can't follow you. I don't have the power. No, 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 no. His spirit is there to waken you so you can say, okay, I'll follow you. And afterwards, you don't turn around and say, oh, I follow Jesus. Look at me. You say, thank you, Jesus, for calling me. Thank you, Jesus, for awakening me. Thank you, Jesus, for making me, redeeming me, and sanctifying me. If I harp on this a bit, it's because I don't want you to miss it. One of the greatest threats that the Lutheran church has right now in the Missouri Synod is that we would reject the goodness of the law in the name of the gospel. I mean that. If you've never experienced it, it's jarring when you experience it. We want to hold to both. 
The law is good. The law means love. And if we get rid of that, then all we have left is hate and fear. Again, we continue. May the God of hope, what's the hope? Jesus, not me. Jesus is the hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. That believing is going to be an action, right? Your faith is passive in this way. You cannot make yourself trust anybody. You can't do it. They're only trustable when they're trustworthy. And so as they demonstrate trustworthiness to you, trust is created within you. So what God is doing is creating trust within you. But once you trust someone, you can know you trust them. And you can, in fact, use that trust later when you're like, oh, I don't know if I should trust him right now, but I trust him. I will. You can actually rely on that later. And what he's saying here is that that process of knowing that you trust Jesus is a source of joy and peace. The subjective experience of being made a believer is an experience of peace in the conscience. That is, you know you're at peace with God. Even when your conscience is in fire, you know you're at peace with God. And of joy, that is to know that even the bitterness of this age is going to give way to the comfort of the resurrection. It's bittersweet. Verse 14, he shifts a little bit here. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He thinks that this church, even though they're having their struggle, nonetheless knows who Jesus is and are able to talk about the Bible with each other in such a way as to build each other up. Verse 15, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of a reminder because of the grace given me by God, right? So what what does he have in mind? Probably the dispute about meat, probably the issue between the Jewish and, and the Gentile kind of racism, whatever that was going on there among them. But you could also make the case that when he writes about sin in chapters one and two and three, the original condition of us, you remember all of this stuff about how we are, uh, there's no one who's righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, right? That's pretty bold. When he writes that you're saved by faith alone, just like Abraham, that Abraham was justified by faith, not by works, that's pretty bold. When he insists that your baptism into Christ kills you and raises you with the death and resurrection of Christ, I mean, talk to a Baptist, that's pretty bold. When in chapter seven, he insists that your life in the spirit is going to be full of a give and take, a push and pull. You're going to find your own flesh lying to you all the time and crushing you. You're going to fight back, but not even know you are. You're going to be confused and weakened. The things you want to do, you're not going to do. The things you don't do, that's what you're going to want to do. It's pretty bold. To say you're never going to be condemned anyway. That's chapter eight. That's pretty bold. To say that you're elect, you've been chosen by a monotheistic God, a monergistic God who does all the work and has picked you out of the fire, it's pretty bold too. To say that the Jews are not elect anymore because they've rejected faith, that's pretty bold too, that's chapter 11. He's bold all the way through. Again, his point here though is bear with the boldness. Take it. Let it be yours. Yeah. Now, he says he has been given a special grace to be a minister. He means preacher there, apostle, a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God. I love that. The priestly service of the gospel of God. We don't have priests per se 
in Christianity, aside from the fact that all of you are the priests of Christianity. And the priestly service of the gospel is that good news, that good message, that good spell, right? The good story that makes you priests. And again, go back to chapter one, verses three and following of this very book, the gospel of God, he defines it. It is that the son of David is risen from the dead. Paul has given over to the priestly service of announcing that the son of David is risen from the dead so that the offering of the Gentiles, that is you, not your money, you may be acceptable, sanctified in the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus Christ, son of David, is risen from the dead so that you are sanctified. And Paul preaches it so that you are sanctified when you hear it. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He actually says, look, if I wanted to, I could boast. Because, like, I've done a lot. I planted Corinth. I planted Philippi. I planted Thessalonica. Uh, I've been all over the place. Saw all sorts of people be baptized and, and whatnot. He's, I could boast, but he's not going to. Right? For He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Huh? So even when you say, I mean, here, here, here's a good test for this. Can you say, I please God? Feel it in your heart. Like, can you, like, think about it. Can you say it yourself? I, I please God. There's a, there's a spirit that says, no, you can't. That would be selfish. That would be worse righteousness. No, 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 no. I mean, it could be. It, it certainly could be. And that would be wrong. But when God has said to you that you please him, if you can't say, I please God, you just haven't believed what God said. Right? He's sworn to you. Like, he's pleased with you. So that's why, again, Paul makes it his aim to boast in what God has done. Boast in the fact that God is pleased with you. And you know this because he died for you. You know this because he washed you. You know this because he's going to feed you. Huh? Say it. I please God. Yeah. Say, I please God not by my works. Say, I please God because God chose me. Amen. It's true. Going on. What he's accomplished through Paul to bring to the nations, bring the nations to obedience by word and deed. Now, again, I don't know if that word obedience is the best one there. Discipline, alignment, faith. You could put all that in there. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And he's been a preacher on the mission field. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the good news, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. This is interesting. So if he's going to boast at all here, is this boast. is He's not going to go where Peter already preached. He's not going to go where John already preached. He's going to go into the hardest, most difficult places and preach the gospel there. It's like, wow, Paul. I mean, I, I don't have that kind of gumption myself, I, but I, I ask for it, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's his point here. It's his ambition to speak the word of God where it's not been voiced. As it is written, again, he's trying to talk about the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 52. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It doesn't mean they never hear and they believe. It means that the mission of the church goes to those who have not heard, tells them they hear. Comes to you who are blind, tells you, you see. 
the next paragraph of the chapter is going to be about Paul's plans to visit Rome. It's, it's not the most engaging dogmatic chapter that, that you could have. It's more in the history realm of things. You might remember last year at our Set Apart series, uh, Dr. Adam Kuntz preached on 2 Corinthians about an offering sent by the church in Corinth back to the Jerusalem church that was enduring a famine. This is the same thing, actually. He's telling the Romans he's not going to come to Rome because he's taking that offering down to Jerusalem, but that he hopes to come to Rome because he would like to spend some time with them, right? So he says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered in coming to you. That is, I'm busy preaching the gospel to people who need to hear it. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company a little while. Right? So, so he says, I've wanted to visit you for a long time, uh, but I, I make it my aim to preach the gospel where it's not already been preached and you've actually had it preached to you. But I hope to come to you eventually because I want to go to Spain where nobody's been and I can stop and hang out with you for a while on the way. At present, however, verse 25, he's got a different plan. He can't do that yet. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, that's the areas of Greece that would include Corinth, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting. It'd be like if, if as a congregation, you know, we heard about a congregation somewhere else that was demolished by a tornado or a a whirlwind of some kind, and we decided, oh, you know what? We're just going to take some of our savings and just send it down there. Right? That's kind of what's taking place. It's it's a good thing, right? But how do you how do you apply that? How do you, how do you take that? Well, I think I think the next verse really helps with that. It says they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the nations, that's the Greeks who are sending the money, have come to share in their spiritual blessings, that's the faith that was given to Abraham. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. So we're going to have our set apart series here in a month or so, right? October. Every year we talk about money so that we don't have to talk about money all year long. We don't have to sweat and worry. And we've been incredibly blessed, by the way, the last few years in this. We've seen our entire budgetary situation blossom into something that we, we don't have much to worry about right now. That's why we're going to keep talking about money once a year. So we never think that it's really about the money. So we have a biblical view of how we steward our resources and our lives together. And so that you, you get the idea, well, why bring offerings at all? Is it so you can make a sacrifice? No, right? The sacrifices are done. Christ has achieved it on the cross. Why do you bring offerings? The idea is that you have benefited from spiritual things, and so you want to share your material things with those who have need. The first person who that is, look around you. It's someone who you don't know that's in this building right now who comes to this church. What they need is to hear the gospel you believe in. And so you give the offering to pay for those lights, to fix the roof when we have to. It's not, it's not soon, by the way. We did fix an air conditioner this summer. Right? So you give for each other. Huh? Secondarily, you keep me alive. And those other children over there, a couple over there, a couple over there, you, you keep us fed. 
so I can keep getting up here every week and do this, spend my entire life diving into this book as deep as I can get into it so I can come and bring it to you. So that's there too, right? I'm sharing with you spiritual things, so you share with me material things. But then also beyond this, we want to have the capacity to look out from our midst, see the needs of others, and give them, right? This is where in the past we've done like the uh, the, the uh, homeless bag handouts that we ask you to take and pass out to people around town. Uh, this is why we're able to support someone like Mr. John Poppy down at the seminary this year. We're, we're giving him a big support while he's going to school, right? That's why. It, it's not, and so if, if you're ever in a situation during Set Apart where you're like, I feel bad that I'm not giving more, like, don't give more. Stop. Don't do it out of guilt. Please. We're okay, really. God has all the money. He'll deal with it when he wants to. But when you see that it's good to share, well, and maybe sometimes you have to be like, but my flesh doesn't want to. Okay. You can make your flesh do it. That's the way I got to do it every week. In fact, I'm so lazy. I have Meredith write the check so I don't have to do it. Somehow then I don't notice it, right? It's kind of silly. But again, so, you know, there's a point at which the discipline's good. But... The, the value of it is simply what you've already received. So again, if you're, well, I don't want to go too far off on that, but like if you're worried about your income, like if you're the widow with the might, don't put it in the offering box. Right? Come and ask for help. But if you're not the widow with the might, again, out of your abundance, see the reason you have abundance is to share. That's the point there. Okay, so... Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this, that is, Paul says, when I have gotten down, taken this gift to the starving people, the hungry people in Jerusalem, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now, this is actually true. This is what happened, but not the way Paul thought it was going to happen. Paul does probably go to Spain by way of Rome, but he goes to Rome in chains which is what he's going to say in the next section, like pray that I don't go in chains. It's actually <laughs> is what he's going to get, right? Uh, he says, I know, verse 29, when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That is, I know when I get there, it'll be because Christ took me there. So I know that much. And you can say that about any step you take in this life. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, right? That's the part. I'm going back to Jerusalem. There are unbelievers there. They're going to want my blood. Pray to God that he will deliver me from their blood, from that bloodshed, so I may come to you. And again, amazingly, that also does come to pass. He is delivered in chains. In fact, his chains are how he gets out of the area without being murdered. It's really quite a story, book of Acts. You can read it anytime. But again, now, let let me ask you this, um, and maybe I'm asking the internet more than you, but maybe I'm asking you this. When Paul says, again, verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God. Is that law or gospel? Now, you can make a case that it's law because it's something he's asking you to do. But let me suggest to you, that is not why we have the proper distinction of law and gospel. So we can look at this little verse and diagnose it as law. 
Paul's asking you to pray. He's just asking you. He's appealing to you. He's even kind of begging you. He's saying, pray. And if your theology is so legalistic that it has to say, that's law, you can't preach it. I'm worried about you, actually. I'm worried about your spirit. I'm not sure you know the gospel. Because a Christian, when they hear a Christian say, pray for me, doesn't say, that's law. They say, yes, I will. Hmm? Because you know who you're praying to. All right. He also says, he, pray that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He wants to be received by the Jerusalem Christians as a, as a welcome, right? Um, so that, verse 32, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of all peace, uh, excuse me, by the God of peace be with you all. All right. So next week, we're still going to look at one more chapter, Romans chapter 16. Um, it'll be interesting. A lot of it is a bunch of greetings and hellos and farewells and things like that. And there's a chunky section on false teaching. We've really gone through the heart of the book now, though, at this point, right? So just with our last few moments here to, to recap this, I've done it a little bit offhandedly, but let me run you through it. If you've been here all the way through, God bless you. If you've only gotten pieces, okay. There were times when definitely there is more law than gospel than what Paul says. Does that mean we shouldn't preach it? Here's how it hangs together. Chapter one says, God created everything and saved everything by the resurrection of the son of David. Chapter two says, man continues to be wicked. Chapter three says, if you judge yourself rightly, you'll see that there is wickedness in your flesh, but there is another righteousness that is bigger than that wickedness, and that is the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Chapter four says that this is God's action to save you through faith. That is, to believe what God has said when he says he is risen. Alleluia. You're justified by him saying that to you and him making you believe it. You're justified now. Chapter 5 then continues on this idea of justification being a certainty that your faith is alive forever. Chapter 6 emphasizes this as being something you can see in your life in your baptism. That the waters of your baptism are the place where the oath was sworn to you. Right? So, so when I proclaim that he is risen, it's going out to all of you. Right? It's, it's like a shotgun blast, right? When you are baptized by the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit placed in the water onto you, that's like a sniper shot from heaven. Like he's waiting all through history, taking aim and kapow. You're just shoved into Jesus there, right? That's chapter six. You've been dead and raised in Christ. Chapter seven, the result of this faith that knows you're in Christ that knows you're justified not by you, but by what God has done, is going to see everything that's wrong. Your eyes are going to be opened to see sin in ways that everyone else has to kind of put it under the carpet. They can't handle admitting their failings because they're needing to make them go away so they can feel good about themselves. You're free to actually say, I still feel the evil. Chapter 8 says that there's nonetheless no condemnation for you. None. 
that neither angels nor demons, principalities, powers, high depth, anything else in all creation, nothing may separate you from the love of Christ. You are more than a conqueror. Again, it's a promise. Chapter 9 goes on to say, well, what about the Jews? Didn't the word of God fail? He says, no, 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 no. Election works like this. God preaches, he makes people believe, and then sometimes people within that group over time fall away. But that doesn't mean the word of God failed. That meant that they rejected Christ. Nonetheless, even their rejection of Christ shall only serve to further proclaim Christ to you. And so even as at that time, back in history, the Jews rejected Jesus, many of them, it served so that the gospel would go to the nations. It was the persecution of the Jewish church that drove the apostles outside of Jerusalem to the nations. And Paul also will say then, so likewise also your faith will come back around and benefit them. So that no situation in history happens that you do not know works for the good of those who are in Christ. Chapter 11 and 10 right there. Chapter 12. So since you know this, live like you know it. And that's worship. The truest worship. To live like you know it. Does that mean live perfect? No. No. Does that mean you're never going to have a guilty conscience? No. It doesn't mean that either. Does that mean that you're going to know who Jesus is and he's going to make you different than the pagan who doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. Are are the pagans going to be surprised when you're different? When you don't join them in the flood of debauchery? Yeah. In fact, they might even hate you for the sake of the name of Jesus. That's okay. The spiritual act of worship is to know that that's okay. That yea, though you die, yet you will live. Chapter 13 means try to obey the order. Try to stay within the society that you have. No need to go out and foment rebellion or any such thing. But overall and through all, seek the good of your neighbor and strive to love others. So that if you find yourself in the church, chapter 14, arguing about stuff that isn't in the Bible, stop it. Let it be something for somewhere else. Have your own opinions. Believe what you believe. Just don't carry it with the weight that you carry the word of God. And so chapter 15, those of you who are strong, do this. Those of you who are weak, remember Jesus. And together stand in the imitation of the Christ, not as something we do to achieve, but knowing that you cannot look upon Jesus forever and not eventually start to look like him. And that's his promise. In the name of Jesus, amen. Please rise for prayer.